This podcast is brought to you in part by Bradley, a full-service law firm representing clients across the country from nine offices, including Jackson, Mississippi. Learn more at bradley.com. Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right On Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. Hosted by Ebony Lumumba and brought to you by the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Chapter 3, Salman Rushdie. This is Ebony Lumumba. We're with Write on Mississippi, and we're talking about writing that isn't necessarily distinct to our state, but one of the authors I've been reading for a decade and a half at least and I'm so thrilled to have across from me Salman Rushdie. Hello. Hello, hello. That was so nice to be here. It is nice to have you. And it, we felt your wind coming in when you got into Mississippi, right? <laughs> so you've changed the atmosphere. Oh, well, okay. Yes, I carry these special effects around <laughs> with me. <laughs> right. Pyrotechnics and all of it. Yeah. yeah. So this interview, we want it to be a, more of a conversation. You've done probably more interviews over your career than you can count. But I want to ask you some of the things that perhaps you never really get to disclose, right? So nothing about your writing process or what inspires you, but I'm kind of interested in what you read and what you're reading right now. What's on your bedside table? Right now, what am I reading? I mean, the thing is, when I, I, I'm right in the middle of writing a novel right now, and, and when I'm doing that, I tend not to read a lot of other fiction because, Mm. you know, the, the, Especially great writers, very good writers, often have infectious voices. You know? Ah, so, so, so they find they're so creep you, into your. So you find yourself process. trying to write like Hemingway or something, you know, and, it, and it's that's usually a mistake. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so you, I don't think you can do it without the drinks. And what I know exactly, well, he couldn't do it. <laughs> but I, and I also find that that the book that I'm writing itself demands that I read certain things, you know, so I can learn about things, find out about things. So so I tend to read around what I'm writing. But one of the books that was very, that accidentally helped to kickstart this book was, of all things, Don Quixote, you know, that, that... You're kidding! Yeah, that last year, I don't know if you remember, last year was this big anniversary, it was the 400th anniversary, both of Cervantes and mm-hmm. of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I uh, remember. You know, who had the same birthday, Yeah, amazingly. Wait, now that I don't think I amazingly. even cataloged. That amazing, is amazing. But, amazing, but true. Same same date of the same year. Wow. Uh, and, and so th- there were a lot of literary events that I found myself at where people wanted to discuss both of those, right? Both Cervantes huh. and Shakespeare, and and so I hadn't read Don Quixote since I was at college, you know. No. So, so, and as it happens, there is a wonderful new translation by newish by Edith Grossman, um, which is the best translation there's ever been. What in makes it the best? It's just it's just the most colloquially written. It feels uh. like it feels like a contemporary novel, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, not like some dusty old classic High you know it, fe- brow, it yeah. feel it feels like somebody just wrote it you know and yeah. and so i've had read that again and and it got me thinking you know and so i'm so i'm writing this thing which is in part it's a road novel in part it's a novel about an old man being obsessed with a woman he doesn't even know you know and which what happens in don quixote you know? <laughs> yeah and, and, exactly and, and, i know it very well and and so it's growing into a a kind of a way of looking at what's happening in the country now, but 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 through this very comic 
We're not talking about any old man in particular obsessed with women. Well, (laughs) no, no, no. I mean, one of the things that I, I discovered early on in my writing that people these days are obsessed with the idea of autobiography. You know, that's very true. And people always think there's a. They ask you which character in the novel is you. You know, and Mm -hmm. you think, well, not. I mean, really, none of them and all of them. You know, right, I, mean, yeah. I mean, Flaubert famously, when he was asked this question, said, Madame Bovary, that's me. You know, <laughs> yeah. c'est moi. Exactly. You know? and, and so I, beca- I, beca- I, became, I began to be kind of perverse about this and be determined not to have a character in a book that people could associate, say, oh, that's him. Well, it makes you know? authors seem very egotistical. That I've got well, to write myself into. Well, there's a way, there's a reason for sometimes. I mean, there are some wonderful books where, where writers deliberately have characters who are close to them mm-hmm. you know that if you if you read philip roth then knowing you know nathan zuckerman is a kind of version of philip roth and, and yeah. if, if you read saul bellow then moses herzog is kind of a version of saul bellow if you yes. read proust <laughs> then marcel in alarachesh is i mean he even has the same first name right. as, as as proust mm-hmm. but then you discover that they're not the same mm-hmm. you know that stephen Dedalus is not james joyce you know that yeah, that yeah. marcel is not proust and i've done i mean when i wrote Ages ago, when I wrote Midnight's Children, the the narrator of that novel has a lot in common with me. And you know, he's the same age as me. He essentially grows up in my neighborhood, and he goes to my school. And mm-hmm. and and, um, and a lot of his boyhood friends are kind of composite versions really? of yeah. But he himself, I don't think, is at all like me. You know, so so yeah. I put him into a world that I knew. You know, mm-hmm. a, kind of, a, a world that was incredibly familiar to me because it was the world I grew up in. But he, I don't think he's like me. You know, and yet you don't think he's like you. I don't do. But, it, would, but people who would who read the books, people who read the books, all think he's like me. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but they're wrong. Uh, maybe some of that you'll just take. Yeah, you just have. But I mean, for example, he's as a character, he's quite passive. Mm-hmm. You know, he's yeah. somebody. He's, he's somebody to whom things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's not like a can-do guy. You know, he doesn't take charge. That is true. Um, he's a target for what happens to him. You know, and and I kind of, in a way, that sort of when I was writing the book, I would sometimes get irritated with, with that, and and I would want him to be more proactive. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and more heroic, if you like. You sure. know, and and when I tried to write that, it was always awful. Uh, Real. It be- wasn't organic. It wasn't him. You were forcing it, it wasn't onto him. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to make him do something that wasn't natural to him. So he was his own being. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the things that happens all, over, all, all the time in writing is you make up these people, and they can be anything. You can make up anybody you like. But once you've made them up, then you can't change them. You have you to know? let them live. Then you have to be, they have to be that person. You know? and, and that's why I'm saying that I think, for a start with him, with Salim, there's a thing, you know, when I was 14 years old, just under 14 years old, I, I left Bombay, my hometown, and yeah. I went to first boarding school and then college in, in England. And and then my life became, you know, in, in other countries. And But it never happens to him. I mean, he never leaves home, you know. So, yeah. so, so his whole life is shaped by that period in, in India and Pakistan, you know. So, mm-hmm. so his experience is completely unlike mine. Did that feel like being home? Writing yeah. that character who was in a space that was yeah, so familiar did. to you. It did because one of the reasons for writing that book was that at that time I was living in London, and I was what was I? You know, when I started writing that book, I was like twenty-eight or something, mm-hmm. and and I really was afraid that I was in danger of losing touch with mm-hmm. with where I came from. You know, and um, 
And I, in many ways, wrote that book as a kind of act of reclamation, you know, to say, yeah, this is mine, yeah. you know. And, and uh, I'm very happy I did because it actually showed me, it showed me the way. We're Mississippi, and I think a lot of Mississippi writers do something similar. Even if they leave the state or the South, mm. they find themselves writing about the surroundings that are so near and dear to them. So it's, you know, it's, it's endearing to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that Faulkner, for example, is yeah. a writer that a lot of people in India respond to very strongly, mm. you know. And, and I think it's because of that, that sense of roots, that sense of, you know, writing about uh, the world you came from and belong to so on you know and uh uh so yeah he's i mean i i had read faulkner before i ever had set foot in the in the south and Did they color your opinion about, about where you were headed yeah, yeah i mean it it i it made me read a lot of other uh writers of the south you know i found myself reading all these brilliant women writers you mm-hmm. know uh, eudora welty castle mccullers catherine ann porter and you know um all these people mm-hmm. flannery o'connor yeah um, and it was in a funny way, even though it was a completely alien world to me, you know, that there were, there was a lot about it that was familiar, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the way, the way families work, the way, um, that people live in extended families, you know, and, and, uh, the, the, the contrast between, uh, poverty and wealth and, and, oh, gosh, and yes. the very important place of religion and, and, you know, all these things I thought, well, I, I know about yeah. this. You know, I, I know about it in a completely different way, but it's kind of the same. So I always felt very drawn to the literature of the American South. You're, what you're kind of speaking to is this formation of the global South, mm. where there are these shared experiences or uh, familiar cultural sort of practices. People all over the world in the in this uh, region that we've kind of formulated. And mm. literature is one of the spaces where that becomes very real. Yes, I mean the same thing happened to me when I started reading Latin American literature. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, um, me too. And I thought, oh, I've never been there, but I kind but of I know, know this. I know this. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and then when I actually did begin to travel, both in the American South and in and in Latin America, I thought, you know, these books were telling the truth. It actually is a culture that I kind of recognize, you know, for good or evil. But I get the point of it. Yeah. We've got an episode with uh, Robert St. John and Wyatt Waters, and they they delve into sort of culinary landscapes. Mm. And we talked with them about how South Italy is very much like the American South in terms of the foodscape. Mm-hmm. And so that gets me to thinking about writing process and cultural practice that maybe takes you to the place where you feel most creative, most comfortable. Mm. You talk about uh, writing Midnight's Children in a shell of what's familiar to you. Are there practices that you have, like things that you eat, drink, do, spaces that you like to be in when you're producing this work? No, I mean, what I do have is a... I mean, I used to be very, very determined that I could only write in my special room to write Mm -hmm. in, you know, and... and, um, at a certain point, you have to give that up. You know, Why is be- that? Well, because life intervenes. And you, you, know, <laughs> you can't get to the room. And, and you have to be all over You've the place. You've got to travel. And, you, and, you know, and, and, and there are children and there's a, you know, there, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. And you have to, I had to teach myself that I would be able to write in anywhere that I was. You know, and and one of the tricks uh, there's there's an um, there's an American writer who I think is a little bit forgotten in America now. He lived in England a long time called Russell Hoban, mm-hmm. 
um, wrote very good children's books and some very good adult novels. He had a wonderful kind of post-nuclear war novel called Ridley Walker, which mm. I strongly recommend. Anyway, Russell had this trick where he would carry around with him wherever he went, like eight or nine objects, hmm. like small personal, Talents, just small personal objects, you know. Um, Interesting. And whenever he, were, if he was like in a hotel room, wherever he was, he would arrange these objects and, and, and it would take him like an hour. He wouldn't just put them out. He would arrange them in a kind of almost ritual relationship with each other, you know. Interesting. So he uh, brought his He brought his world with, with him. him. Yeah. And once the objects were in the right place, then he was home and, and he could work. That's remarkable. And I kind of learned that trick. So I have a few objects. What are your objects? You knew that was going to be the next question. Well, I I tell you, one of them is that probably the oldest thing, possession that I have, is that when I was a baby, my father's best friend gave to me, as it were, Mm -hmm. a a little silver brick that's like an an inch high, engraved with the map of India. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that is now powerful about that is that the map as it's drawn on the brick is the unpartitioned map. I was about India. to ask which yeah. map it's, is it? It's is before. It? So okay. India, Pakistan, there's no division. It's ah, the, it's, before it's Midnight's a, Children. Before the, before the big division of 1947. Right, you know, so, so there's the unpartitioned map of India and this little brick, silver brick. Beautiful. And I carry that around. I carry, that's, that's, that's the most powerful thing. If so, I, that, I mean, it sounds powerful just in its mm. own right, mm. being this unpartitioned mm. India pre-47. But to you, what's the most meaningful element? Is it the familial connection it's, or it's the, the yes, memory? Yes, it's the connection with my family and with my father and, you know, with all of that. And it's just become like a talisman. You know? Talisman, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I can just touch it and feel good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need something like that. Mm. Typically, it's just a pillow. And touch it and feel good with mm-hmm. a nap. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that they're too. So, they're so infrequent. Yeah. So infrequent. So you're in Mississippi now. And uh, we take a great deal of pride in the writers from this space and what they produce and how they represent uh, our realities. Mm-hmm. And you've talked a little bit about reading Faulkner and Welty and some other Mississippi writers and kind of formulating your idea of the state. But being in the space, mm-hmm. does that challenge any of those ideas? or Well, it reinforces them, really, because I think one of the things which I'll actually talk about in my lecture is that there's a kind of writers like me whose lives have been uprooted, you know, and which have ended up being in several different countries. There's a kind of envy of the deeply rooted writer. You know, and I was ah. just listening to Jasmine Ward, and she was, she was talking yeah. about, you know, how she came back to the South in order to find her way mm-hmm. as an artist, you know, and, and how uh, she feels that the fact that her characters are so grounded and have these foundations uh, here is a thing which, yeah. which gives them hope and gives them a way of seeing a, a hopeful future for themselves. And, and then I think, well, yeah, but that's, not, that's, that's really not been my experience. So, it, so there's a bit of me that envies, you know, Faulkner taking this this tiny patch of the world, you know, and creating an entire universe. Yeah. And, you know, and finding it to be inexhaustible, you know, enough for a lifetime of, of, of writing. And I think, okay, well, I admire that, but I can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's, that's somebody else's work. And so then you think, you know, you end up trying to find out what is, what are your books to write, you know, and, and you lose something, you, another door opens, you know, and I think Mm. one of the things that's happened that I feel has become like a subject for me is that, you know, we live in this very shrinking world and now 
in a way, we don't live lives which are sealed off from the rest of the world. Sure. You know, because the rest of the world rushes in mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And so the, that question of connection, of how even if you're living, you know, in a small place in the deep south, you know, you're not you're not separate from history. You know, you're the, that's to Very say, true. the way in which the world it works now is everywhere affects everywhere else. You know, um, and uh, and and if you've had, you know, I've had a lot of my life in India and Pakistan. I've had a lot of my life in England, and now the last twenty years I've been living in in uh, in New York City. And, and I mean, I'm even an American citizen now, so I'm officially an American novelist. You know, so. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so, but. What that does is it gives me, I think, an ability to take on the subject of that kind of connection about how does over here connect to over there? You know, how do mm -hmm. the lives of people here connect to lives of people halfway across the world? You know, and and one of the things I really admire that's happening now in American literature and generations younger than mine is that there are so many writers now from all over the world you know, living and working as American writers, you know, whether it's whether it's Chimamanda Adichie right. or, or Jhumpa yeah. Lahiri, you know, mm, or, my uh, you know, or Junot Diaz, or there's, mm. I mean, there's so many. There's, there's Nam Le from Vietnam, there's, right. there's Yi Yun Lee from China, you know, and all these stories from all over the world are now becoming a part of the story of American literature. It's a new Americanness. I think it's so interesting, you know, and, and then I think, well, I can do that, you know. I mean, I've got suitcases full of stories from somewhere else, you know. So, so it's in fact very interesting to get to my. I mean, I'm 71 now, but to get to that age and to find that the writers who are actually showing you the way mm -hmm. are so much younger than you. you They're showing so, you the way. Yeah, and I mean that's remarkably humble. And I like that you're talking about this sort of new American identity. Mm. It's being forged by folks who. We probably considered ex expatriates before, yeah. but now. But now they're completely they're American yeah. writers, you know, and, and they American. and what they're doing is adding such richness to American literature by bringing in all these stories from everywhere. Politics can learn something from writers. Yeah, well, that's it, but they never do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, mm. you've been you've been writing for so long, and you're kind of talking about how it's evolved in mm. terms of space and influence. What is the project that you have not written that you hope to produce? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, another good book. You know? <laughs> Just I mean, a good I book. That's. I mean, really, at yeah. this point. One of the things that happens when you get to, to my age is you become clear that there are fewer books in the future than there are in the past. Mm. You know, that, that's to say, I know, I mean, I now, what is it, I've published 18 books, you know, um, 14 works of fiction and, and some of nonfiction. But um, but it's quite clear that there's not another, another 18. Another 18. You know, so, Who's to say? So what it means is that it focuses your mind. You think, okay, don't waste time. Ah. You know, that if you if the time ahead is not infinite anyway when you're a kid you think life is infinite you know and there's mm -hmm. time to do everything you do you know and and now you realize that ain't the case <laughs> <laughs> and, not at uh, all and so you it makes you feel that whatever you do it has to be absolutely the most central thing that you want to do at that time you know and just forget about everything else you know so what uh, what makes me do is to cut out a lot of peripheral activity you know yeah. i just i just want to do the day job you know, and really? and however many books that means, you know. I mean, I'm 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 I always every every writer fears running out of steam. Hmm. You know, think okay, this book's going to be the last. I mean, I often think with each book, I think this book's the last book. There isn't going to be anything after this. But so far, there's always something else. There's that a, a sort of haunting feeling that your usefulness is 
waning. I mean, I certainly well, don't feel uh, that know, way, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, all of that. There's there's all that nervousness, but um, you know, somebody once said that you should write every book as if it's your last book, and I think that's actually not a bad principle. What's know? the benefit of that? That you say everything you have to say. Get it all out. Yeah, yeah. You don't. You don't think. Okay, I'll don't save, save that something yeah, no, for later. Yeah, say everything you have to say. Interesting. You mentioned uh, Chimamanda Adichie, Jhumpa Lahiri, mm. two of my absolute mm. favorite um, writers. Who are you reading? Now? Well, I mean, I read. You know, I read. I mean, I both of those writers I admire very much, and I mean, I, they're friends also. And so I, you know, you tell them I said hello. <laughs> I will, I will. But I mean, I tell that one of the things you do is you read your friends, you know. So yeah. and as it happens, I have a lot of writers who are friends. So I read, I read Delillo. I think he's, yeah. a, you know, I think he's maybe for me the greatest living American writer. Well, along with Tony, oh, yeah. you know, um, who's still writing. Who's still and writing? She's, and I, I hear she's, she's write, much older than seventy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I so. hear she's writing a novel right now. Yes, you know, so, I've uh, read that as well. Um, Auster, Paul Auster, you know, I read, and and um, and on some of the younger writers, I like. I think Gary Steingart is incredibly funny, and mm-hmm. I really, and also very moving. Yeah, you know, I like his stuff, and Nathan Englander, um, and in in England, I mean, you know, I was when I was living there, particularly in the eighties, it was a generation, a very rich generation mm-hmm. for writing. You know, there were writers like Angela Carter and Jeanette Winterson and Ian McEwan and mm-hmm. Kazuo Ishiguro and. And you know Martin Amis and and etc. And so we all grew up together yeah. and and uh, and read each other's work. And then and then of course what happens is that you lose friends. I mean some of the writers I was closest to aren't around anymore, like Raymond Carver, for example, mm. or you know um, uh, Bruce Chatwin, Angela Carter. You know I mean they're people I was very close to. So there's sort of holes in the world. But fortunately, as I say, the thing about literature is it's an inexhaustible thing. There's, for, you know, there's so many people coming up all the time. So many, I mean, I hadn't read Jasmine Ward till last year, oh, you know, and and I really brilliant. thought, wow, you know. So saying that you read Ward last year, you're in mm. Mississippi right now. This is right on Mississippi. That's the name of this segment. Mm. And what I typically ask authors is what Mississippi means to them. But understanding your background and having lived mm. all over the world. Is there any chance that a little bit of Mississippi might creep into? Well, you know, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what did. I mean, one of the great influences on me and I think on many, many writers is Huckleberry Finn. And Ah. and 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 I remember I mean this will amuse you that that when I first read Huck Finn, I was must have been twenty years old or something, you know, and 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 I said, Look, there's a thing that confuses me about this book, which is that here you have Jim Mm -hmm. running. Mm-hmm. Trying to escape slavery. Right. Why is he on a raft on the Mississippi when it flows south? <laughs> I don't think we ever thought about this directionally. <laughs> you know, how do you escape slavery? That's an excellent practical yeah. question. How do you escape slavery on a river that's flowing into Ag- the into the slave state? Going against the grain. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it always puzzled me. I thought there's something something confusing about this. I will never think of Huck Finn the same way. <laughs> <laughs> so. I also there was a book written by a, a British writer uh, called Jonathan a long time in the eighties, uh, which is in a way a, a response to Twain's life on the Mississippi. Um, a book called Old Glory. Uh, this writer called he's called Jonathan Rayban. Uh, he's sort of a travel writer, mm-hmm. um, but he wrote a book about going down the Mississippi in a small boat, um, and and it's actually be- beautifully done. And you know he met, meets all kinds of people right, and so right. on. But but just his description of the sailing. 
you know, about how treacherous the river is, yeah. you know, uh, how there are areas where there are whirlpools, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and also the, the, the riverbed varies dramatically in depth, you know, so, so yeah. if you don't know the channel, you know, you can find yourself stranded, you know, on, on a sandbank or whatever. It's or a sunk. dangerous body of and water. And that, I thought, just as a, I like that book because of its portrait of the river, not just the life of as a, With a personality. Yeah, exactly. The river you, is you, a character. You begin to think about the river as a, as a, yeah. And I mean, I've been to various points on the Mississippi. I mean, I've, 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 spent, I mean, I've been to New Orleans quite a lot of times mm -hmm. and, and St. Louis and, you know, various places. So, yeah, I think the Mississippi and I have a bit of a relationship. Well, we're happy to hear that. That means that the stickiness of Mississippi has gotten you uh, connected with us. Yeah, you, I think so. You'll always have a, a little bit of us and maybe come back to, to visit very soon. I'd love to. Well, this has been Right on Mississippi. And although Salmon says that he's 71 and you never know when the last book is going to be, we certainly hope that you write on. Thank you. Right on, Mississippi. We want to thank Salmon Rushdie for joining us today. Be sure to visit your local bookstore to purchase his work and keep up with him online by checking out the links in the description. Right on Mississippi is brought to you by the Mississippi Book Festival and Bradley Aaron and produced by Pottery Studios. Our guest for this episode was Salman Rushdie. Our editor was Joshua Heath, producer Holly Lang, executive producer Bo York, and I've been your host, Ebony Lamumba. We look forward to turning the page with you on the next chapter of Right On Mississippi. <laughs>